Good morning, Shore Church. Good to see you all. Um, friends, visitors, guests in from out of town for the long weekend. We're honored that you're here with us this morning. I'm really glad that you could join us. If you would, go ahead, open your Bibles up. We're going to be continuing on in Colossians 3 this morning. While you do that, I'll let you know just a couple things that have been happening and are um, going to be happening. We just ended our first ever Alpha course. That was a big success. We had a weekend away last weekend and got just many great conversations, met some new friends, had some incredible discussions. So to all of you who have been praying along with us for that, thank you. And um, we, we do want to do another one sooner rather than later. I don't have a date for you yet, but um, that's going to be coming down the pipe um, probably early fall. So this summer, as you're out having conversations and meeting neighbors and barbecuing and uh, just being a great neighbor to this city, keep that in mind. We, um, we want to have many of these and hope and pray many from the community will come out as well. You'll see up on the screen, I hope, we have pictures of um, three short church members here. Do we have the slide? No slide. Okay. Okay. Um, um, we're sending a team to Mexico this summer from July 10th to 20th. We have three people from the shore going, um, Samaya, Hector, and Gyeong. So they're going to be out in the lobby after, and I'd love it if you would just stop by. They've got a letter, can let you know how you can be praying for them, what they're up to, as well as how you could be supporting them. They're all right here. Could you stand up so people know who they're looking for after? Um, yeah, this is just awesome. We're really excited about this trip. It's in conjunction with Westside Church downtown. And um, basically, they're going down to help partner with some new church planting efforts in Mexico. Um, great trip, well worth supporting. And so please look for them in the lobby after. Let me pray and then we'll get going. Well, Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you uh, just for the opportunity to gather as your people. Thank you that you're a God who ministers to us and speaks to us. Thank you that there is a word for us in, in this text this morning. Thank you that you speak. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray you would come and illuminate this text. Make it come alive in our hearts, in our minds. Refresh us. Some of us are dry. Some of us are hurting. Every single one of us, though, needs refreshing from this word and so I pray you would bless my feeble effort. And I thank you for the pleasure of getting to even just speak from this. Thank you for how you've ministered to me. I'm, I'm well aware I'm preaching to a room full of people who all are going to die. 25 years, 15 years, maybe this week. I don't know, Father, but I know that the hope of the gospel in this is our singular hope. And so I pray that you would empower me as I speak. Help me to preach with urgency the truth in the text this morning. And Holy Spirit, I just plead, ignite it. And I pray this um, by the power of the Spirit in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, um, our text this morning, Colossians 3, marks a transition in the book of Colossians. Um, you'll notice, depending on which translation you're reading, it either says, if then, or maybe therefore, um, 3 verse 1. And whenever we see this word, if and then, or therefore, we need to ask what it's there for. It's telling us that there's something that precedes it that's going to be necessary to understand in order to understand what will proceed. That text, that main thought, that sort of fulcrum, that tipping point for this, this point in the text is Colossians 2, verses 6 to 15. You'll remember James preached through this two weeks ago, and if you weren't here for that, these are all online. But the, the therefore that Paul is referencing back to is Colossians 2, verses 6 
to 15. And if you've been with us, you'll remember that text was Paul's passionate, cold, hard presentation of what the gospel is. This letter he's written to confront some things that have been trying to creep in and affect that gospel. But this text was Paul's cold, hard presentation of just the gospel itself. And so we've got a slide up on the screen. You see, the thing that's been trying to press against the truth of the gospel is religion, is a man-made practice or ideology, and all of them are essentially the same. They say that works plus obedience will equal salvation. So if you do this and get really good at it, you'll get a reward. So it kind of treats Jesus like a cosmic vending machine who you go to, and if you pump in enough good works coins... Um, he'll dispense something for you. It's not Castle Fun Park, though, and this isn't the gospel. And so Paul, in Colossians 2, verse 6 to 15, we've got another slide for you, he presented what Christianity is. So whereas religion teaches works plus obedience equals salvation, the gospel message is it's Jesus' works, and it's Jesus' obedience that purchases our salvation. It's nothing of our own. The good news of Christianity is that we don't save ourselves, but Jesus saves us. That deserves an amen, somebody. James got two last week. I want to break the record, so stay with me this morning, Shore Church. Um, This morning, Paul is going to be addressing what it means to walk out that salvation that Jesus has purchased for us. It's going to begin to transition, and we're going to just ask, he's going to be asking that question, what does it look like to live out the salvation life that Jesus has purchased for us? So if you would, Colossians 1, we're going to read, um, or Colossians 3, pardon me, we're going to read verses just 1 to 4 right now. He says, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So, as, as already mentioned, as we just read, um, the text opens with a if-then. It's a conditional statement um, for you who enjoy grammar, a conditional statement. Um, but what we need to know is, I think most of us, when we hear a conditional statement, and if-then, where our mind goes is purchasing, So if you give me your paycheck, you can get this car. If you get up and go to spin class in the morning, go to gym at night, you can have the body of a Greek-like God. Um, This is probably how we're thinking, but this isn't how Paul is using this. Remember, it's not our works that earn us salvation. Paul's Paul's not using this if-then statement with regards to purchasing, but to partaking. So maybe a better analogy would be if someone sets a juicy baseball sirloin, or sirloin, pardon me, in front of you, partake of it. Vegetarians are cringing. That's my favorite food. Um, what is it? A veggie dog. Somebody puts. A, it looks like it comes out of a Play-Doh Fun Factory. I don't know if they look appealing to you. They don't to me. But whatever your stick is, kale, partake. If somebody puts your favorite thing in front of you, partake. He's saying. If this is indeed the case, partake of it. If you wake up with wings tomorrow morning, go out and fly with them. Try them out. If indeed you've been raised with Christ, 
If you have indeed been delivered from below by no work of your own, if you have indeed had the record of debt that stood against you forgiven, as our text says, if you have indeed had your trespasses forgiven, if you have indeed been freed from the bondage of sin, if you are indeed set to, eternal, or set to inherit eternal life through no work or effort of your own, then partake of it. Amen. Then indulge. Too. Then eat the baseball sirloin or the veggie dog, according to your conscience. And there's four things Paul's going to, four commands Paul's going to put before us now to help us be better partakers of that. We're only going to cover three of them this morning. Four commands Paul's going to give in Colossians 3 in order that we would become better partakers of all that's set before us. The first, verse 1, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Now, Hearing Paul declare this imperative, it might make you think, well, wait a minute, we don't earn this. Why is he commanding us to do anything? Sounds like he's talking about purchasing, but notice, Paul's only making an imperative after his description of salvation. It stems out of this, this declaration of salvation. There's no moral imperative on the earning side of the equation, but there is moral imperatives on the participating, on the evidencing, on the enjoying side of salvation. We don't work as a means to God's grace, but we do respond to it. And he's saying, if salvation has happened, then seeking needs to happen. Not so that, so that we can get grace, but because we've gotten grace. Because there's more grace right there available. He's saying, Seeking needs to happen because seeking can happen and because there's something to seek that can be had. Seeking needs to happen because seeking can happen and because there's something to seek that can be had. So what's Paul telling us to seek? I mean, we're all seeking something. I don't know what that is for you, if it's a payday, a vacation, a new personal record, a spouse, a child, maybe you're looking for something worthwhile to seek for. I don't know what it is. But what's Paul telling us to seek? Right there in verse one, seek the things that are above where Christ is. He's calling us to seek the kingdom of God. He's saying, if Jesus came down in order to, to give us life, if he came down in order to, to rescue us and ransom us and restore us to the Father, if he came down and did all that for us here and now he's seated there, how much more will he give us what's there? Seek the things where Christ is, above, seated with the Father in glory. Seek it. Now, Paul also uses the same word that uh, Jesus uses elsewhere. Actually, we see this word a lot in the New Testament, but a couple key places, Matthew 6, verse 33, we see Jesus' command as well. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Same thing Paul's praying. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. One chapter later, I think 7, verse 8, um, Jesus says, uses the word again. He says, everyone who asks, receives, and seeks, finds. The one who seeks, finds. Seeking needs to happen because seeking can happen because there's something that we can seek that we can find. So short church, what are we seeking? 
If we're going to get what we seek, what are we seeking? What sort of treasure are we after? Matthew 6.20, Jesus says, Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves cannot break in and steal. My mic is going. I got lots of battery. Okay. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves cannot break in and steal. The thing Paul's calling us to seek, it's, it's unparalleled in comparison. Everything else we seek will fade, it will rust, it will destroy, it will be taken from us eventually. But the New Testament presents a glorious picture of what we're to seek after, the treasure that's set before us. Colossians, just a little later, I'm dipping into James's text, but uh, he doesn't mind. Um, we will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it says. We've got a reward. We've got an inheritance. We've got treasure put before us. Revelation paints, I mean, if you haven't read that book before, we studied through it a few years ago. It's all online. There is just some goodness that it presents before us. It says that the whole earth is going to be restored. So you and I, we're not going to go live in Philadelphia cream cheese, floaty place, heaven, that kind of picture. It says Jesus is coming to restore the whole earth. So all the things you love here, that's what we get, except for the beaches in Bali aren't going to be covered in garbage, so you can surf them all day to your heart's content, and you're not going to be eaten by sharks and surfing. You can tell I like surfing. Um, whatever your thing is, you're going to get to do it all. You like mountain biking in the North Shore Mountains? You're going to get to do that in glory. You like river rafting? You're going to get to do that in glory. Everything we love about this place, restored without any of the negative effects, that's good. Three. Matthew 5, it says we're going to inherit the earth. We're going to inherit the earth. Isaiah 60, 61, hear this. We're going to inherit everlasting joy. Everlasting joy. You're after joy here? Guess what you're going to inherit? Everlasting joy. Never-ending joy. That's good. Luke 18 additionally says we're going to inherit eternal life. Man, it's good. This is what Paul's putting before us. Seek that. Now think about this too. This is interesting. All of those things, isn't that just a better version of what we're already searching for here? We're looking for little fleeting moments of joy. We're looking to really take in some of the beauty on the earth here. I'm a travel junkie. I can't watch travel shows. They make my heart go too fast because I want to go everywhere. But the hope of glory lets me know that I will get to go everywhere, get to spend eternity doing that. Everything that we're searching for here, these lesser treasures, are just faint glimpses of what's ahead for us. That's good. Paul elsewhere, Ephesians 1, uh, he says, well, he prays that the eyes of our heart would be opened. They would be enlightened so that we would know what the hope to which he has called us and the riches of the glorious inheritance laid up for us in heaven. It is so important that we catch a glimpse of that. It's so important that we catch a glimpse of that. I read an article uh, this last month that I've sort of spent a bunch of time researching about this man named Forrest Fenn. If you've, you've heard this story, Forrest Fenn, he buried a one-foot-by-one-foot-by-one-foot one one um, treasure box full of rubies, diamonds, all sorts of precious jewels, and, and golden coins. 
and he buried it uh, somewhere. We've got a slide here. Somewhere in the thousand miles between Santa Fe and the Canadian border in the, mountains, uh, in the Rocky Mountains. He's hid it, and, and he wrote a, a cryptic 24-line poem describing where it would be. The poem goes like this. As I have gone alone in there and with my treasures bold, I can keep my secrets where and hint of treasures new and old. Begin it where warm waters halt and take it to the canyon down, not far but too far to walk, put in below the home of brown. For from there it's no place for the meek, the end is ever drawing nigh. There'll be no paddle up your creek, just heavy loads and water high. If you've been wise and found the blaze, look quickly down your quest to cease. But tarry scant with marvel gaze, just take the chest and go in peace. So why is it that I must go and leave my trove for all to seek? My answer, I already know. I've done it tired and now I'm weak. So hear me all and listen good. Your effort will be worth the cold. If you are brave and in the wood, I give you title to the gold. Now, confessional, when I first heard this, my inner Goonie awakened. If you've seen Goonies, I was like, oh my goodness, it's real. There's a treasure map. There's treasure. It's hidden. You get to be in the mountains. This is like every boy's dream, right? This is crazy. And so I began plotting how I could sell off all of my earthly possessions, move my family into a modified Land Rover Defender and head out and seek of this thing. I'm like, this is good rest of my life, right? Because think about it. If I find it, imagine, just imagine finding all that treasure, how good it'd be. I'd be on the cover of magazines. I'd be like an Indiana Jones figure, right? Me and my family, just piles of rubies and pirate doubloons. That's cool stuff. That's seriously cool. But what I discovered is that literally thousands of people have had the same idea as me. People are, are out in search of this right now. Um, one guy I read said he spends 12 hours every day scouring Google Maps trying to, to find the coordinates based off of these clues. People are out, and literally four people have died in pursuit of treasure that get this. A man buried because he was going to die. Thousands of people are spending their summer vacations, their, their sweat, their cash, their evenings, out in pursuit of treasure that an 80-year-old man buried because he was dying, and if you read the backstory, the government was going to take it from him. All this, and whoever finds it is not going to be able to take it either. First Peter um, chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Where do you want your treasure stored? Down here where it can be taken? I mean, we don't even know if that treasure is still wherever it is. I think it's in a river. Um, we don't know if the river's washed it down, if it's buried in sand, if anyone will ever find it. But the treasure Christ sets before us is held in heaven for us. First thing Paul calls us to do in order to become better partakers of this is to seek the things that are above. Seek that treasure. And the way that we seek that is by seeking Christ, the one who's seated at the right hand of God. 
the one who promises to give it to us, the one who says, if you seek it, you will find it. Oh, that we wouldn't waste our lives in pursuit of lesser treasure. Oh, that we wouldn't waste our lives looking here for what can only be found there. Second thing he calls us to is to set our minds on the things that are above verse two, not on things that are on the earth. And we need to see seeking and setting, they're actually very closely related. Whoever, uh, whoever finds Forrest Fenn's treasure is going to be somebody who's both sought it, but also set their mind to acquiring it. They'll, their vision will have to be filled with this. Their heart's going to have to get excited enough for them to set aside time to go and find it. You see, seek and set, they're very closely related. In calling them to seek, he's calling them to, to fill their vision with the treasure and calling them to set, Paul's calling them to the discipline and the dedication that it will take to obtain it. This word setting, it, it communicates the idea that we are actively engaged, that we're intentionally directing. It's as, 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 if, pardon me, it's as if Paul is saying, your heart is going to want to go all over the place. It's going to want to go here. It's going to start to treasure this. It's going to treasure this. You're going to have to keep grabbing it and setting it where it should be. And then it's going to want to go over here and you're going to have to grab hold of it and you're going to have to put it back again. If we want that treasure, we've got to catch a vision of it. We need to set our minds on it. I mean, and to be honest here, we need to really get this treasure. I mean, if Forrest Fenn had said, hey, I buried a box somewhere, thousand miles of the Rockies, um, go and find it, see what's in it. Thousands of people aren't going to be going after it. The quality of the treasure is important. I mean, you might get some geocachers. I don't know what those people are. It's kind of like metal detectors in the mountains. What, what they're going for. Um, but nobody's giving their life up for an empty box. We need to set our mind on the gloriousness of the treasure. It's the description of it that will motivate us to set aside. Hebrews 12, 2, it says, Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. It was that vision that allowed him to set his mind on going to the cross in order to get through the cross to what waited ahead. Short church, what are we setting our minds on? What are we setting our minds on? What are we setting our hearts on? Sometimes these are even good things. Sometimes the, the things that we get distracted by, they're good things, but they're not ultimate things. In sex, it's a good thing. It's even a great thing, but it's not an ultimate thing. Wealth, money, it's a good thing, but it's not an ultimate thing. Relationships, good things, but not ultimate things. Children, great things, loud things, um, but not ultimate things. The list of things that we're prone to setting our hearts and minds on is endless because our hearts actually invent these things. We live in the midst of a culture, too, that tells us that our hearts are the things that will save us. Every Disney movie, we're just essentially Jack Sparrow running around chasing our compass and ending up in just as much trouble as he did. 
We need to be telling our hearts where to go, not having them tell us where to go. Proverbs agrees with this. Proverbs 23, 19. It says, be wise and direct your heart in the way. Be wise and direct your heart. We're to direct, we're to set our hearts. There's a great book on this if you haven't read it. Um, John Bloom, he's I think the new president for Desiring God or Gospel Coalition, but he wrote a book called Don't Follow Your Heart. Um, Clearly it's never going to be on Oprah's bestsellers list, but it's, it's well worth the read. It's well, well worth the read. What are we seeking after? Where are we setting our hearts? Paul says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will, will appear with him in glory. Then we will. Third thing, as we move on, that Paul calls the believers to partake in, to, to, to do in order to partake more fully in the inheritance ahead is this. So he said to, to seek the things that are above and to set our minds on them. And now he says this, put to death the things that are below. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Now, the language choice of Paul is pretty shocking, right? I mean, first he starts off quite positively telling us to seek something and set something. Now he's saying, go and slay something. It gets pretty negative here in a hurry. The, the Greek word for this is um, necro, necro. And, and there's lots of other words Paul could have used, but it's because of the seriousness of the situation that he used, used this. Necro, probably most accurately translated into the English language um, as mortify, Mortify, and so older translations will have this word there. Think of a, a mortician. Mortician is somebody who prepares somebody once they're dead. A mortifier, though, is somebody who sends something to the mortician. Paul's saying we're to be sending what's earthly in us to the mortician. We're to kill it. No, what? Stab it. Chop it. Shoot it. Just kill it. Don't coddle it. Don't put it away somewhere. Don't ignore it. Don't incapacitate it. Don't wound it. Don't maim it. Kill it. Don't run from it. Kill it. Put it to death. John uh, John Owen, he wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin, which I would highly, highly commend. He said this, every unmortified sin will certainly do one of two things. It will weaken the soul and deprive it of its vigor, or it will darken the soul and deprive it of its comfort and peace. If we understand sin to be these lesser things that we turn to instead of the greater thing, then we can understand why it would deprive us of our vigor. It has nothing to give us. We can understand, or pardon me, understand why it would 
deprive us of comfort and peace. It can't give it. It's trying to steal glory from the thing that does deserve it. Elsewhere in the book, John Owen said this. He said, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. The path to that which is above, it's going to involve seeking and setting our minds on the glory to be revealed, but it's going to be strewn strewn with dead corpses of sin and earthly patterns of life that we've killed on the way to it. What sin are you secretly letting grow? What sin are we secretly providing a dark place for it to continue to grow? Can I suggest that if that that hits somewhere in your heart right now, that it's because you're believing a lie that that thing will give you more enjoyment than Jesus can? If you're keeping sin secret, it's because practically we believe that it's going to offer us more enjoyment than Christ has stored up for us in heaven. And church, that is just not so. That's not true. Are we killing our sin or are we coddling it? Do you want to kill your sin? Quick way to tell if you want to kill your sin, how do you respond when it's pointed out? If we're going to be successful at putting our our flesh to death, we're going to need some help. There's sin we don't even know we have. Or we've blinded ourselves to the point where we've completely deluded ourselves to the fact that it's even going on. Proverbs 27, 17, it says, As iron sharpens iron, so does one man sharpen another. We need one another. Have you ever given somebody permission to point out your sin? It hurts sometimes. (laughs) But if we want to be mortifying our flesh, we're going to need it. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices, and you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So verse 5, it gave a list of of some things that we were to to leave, these earthly pursuits. Um, Verse 8 here, it's pointing out things that serve as signals to the fact that we have some of the things in verse 5 going on in our heart. The things listed in verse 8 are, are like warning lights. They're the, they're the byproduct. They're the fruit of the, the things listed in verse 5. Is letting us know that our hope's being found below instead of above. Let me, let me explain this. What makes you angry? Makes you angry. For me, um, any time that I'm not the most important thing, if I'm honest. When I don't get my way now. Somebody cuts me off. 
come on, I have a place somewhere to go to. I'm more like, what are you more important than me? We start to jostle because I'm trying to protect something here because I'm anchored into something here and you're getting in the way of it. So it makes me angry. It's a signal for a misplaced hope. Wrath, it's, it's just the giving of ourselves over to this anger. It's the failing to live in light of an eternal reality and giving full vent to our anger because something has affected our reality now. We want to cash in now, not then, and you're getting in the way of that. Malice, it's literally wickedness that's not ashamed to break laws. It's saying, there's no higher law than me. I won't conduct myself according to that. I'll do whatever I want because they got in the way. They're preventing me from having what I want, so of course I'm going to act this way, or of course I'm going to say this, which goes right into slander, obscene talk, and lying. These are all things that we do because we're not getting our way, because you're encroaching on what is mine and what I want right now. So we lie, or we don't want to be exposed for where, where the secret sin that we're hiding that we think is going to give us pleasure. And so when somebody comes or points it out, we lie. Or then we slander the person back because we want to keep that thing. Verse 8 is signals of of things going on in our lives that are listed in verse 5. They're the things we do to protect the treasure that we stored up down below. We won't participate in any of these things unless we first participated in the first. Now, I mean, to point this out, Jesus went to the cross without slandering or fighting back. He was literally crucified because his treasure was stored up in heaven. We wouldn't slander, we wouldn't fight back if, if our treasure was stored up there. So let me ask, which of these things in verse 8 or 9 is just most true in your own life? And I got a couple, if I'm honest. A couple of these things that ring true. Maybe a couple other that aren't even listed. I got pretty creative. What are they for you? Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lying. If, if you don't know what they are, I um, encourage you, maybe ask a spouse, a friend, just go like, hey, which of, these, which of these do I have? And then trace it back and see why, where it's coming from, what, what's caused this in you. I guarantee there's a link between it and the treasure that you're seeking Now, as well, many of you, you've probably spent years trying to deal with this thing. You're trying to go, how come I can't stop feeling angry? And we found all sorts of reasons for it. Maybe we're trying remedies, this or that. I mean, there's a variety of opinions how you get rid of this. How do I get rid of my anger? How do I stop this? How do I stop that? We've been treating symptoms and not sources. We're treating symptoms of the heart condition, but we're not doing anything to treat the heart. The heart of this problem is our heart. It's seeking things here instead of things there. It's set on things here instead of things there. This is the flesh. The flesh is power, trying to put to death the voice of the spirit instead of by the spirit, putting to death the flesh. It's growing and cultivating what's earthly in us so as to indulge and find enjoyment in it rather than hunting down and putting a target on it in order to slay it by the power of the Spirit at work in us. 
So what are we seeking? What are we settling for that's less than glory? What are we setting our heart and mind to? Are we, are we leading our heart or is our heart leading us? Where are, where are we seeing signals of falsely placed hope? There, church, there, there's more of Jesus to be had. There's more, more enjoyment. There is more peace. There's more of everything that he gives to partake of than you and I have been participating in. And Paul has laid out the path for us to get more. Seek the things that are above. Set our minds on it and put to death anything that would keep us from getting there. We're going to respond in a few ways. First off, as you come forward for communion this morning, um, if you recognize any areas in your life where you've been seeking lesser things, things less than what is prepared and stored above for us, or where you've been setting your mind on lesser, inferior places, or maybe um, a sin has just come to mind, that secret sin that you've been actually hiding and you don't want to die, um, as you come forward this morning, bring these to mind. Now, I said at the beginning that there is new life available and that Paul was going to show us how we could become deeper partakers of it. One of the ways that we do that is to come forward and take this bread and wine. We're forced to reckon with all of the things that, that we've been settling for. It forces us to put it back to Christ. And so this is an opportunity to come forward and remember what Christ has purchased for you. There's grace available this morning and there's hope available this morning. This is an opportunity to come and partake of that to do a transaction with the Lord, to, to put aside those lesser things, to put to death. If you want to confess with somebody, there's, there's a prayer couple. I'll be in the back as well. It would be honored to pray with you. My prayer is that our vision would be filled this morning. This is what I've been praying all week, that our vision would be filled with the treasure above and that we would set targets on that and we would put to death anything that would keep us from that. So if you would call yourself a follower of Christ, come forward, take communion. If you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Christ yet this morning, there is hope and grace available for, here, for you today as well. There's healing. There's hope. There's redemption. There's joy immeasurable. There is an eternal inheritance kept undefiled and unfading for you in heaven. The way you enter into that and the way you become a partaker of that is you... You set your eyes on that. You repent of all the lesser ways you've been, all the lesser things you've been going to, and you just simply say, Jesus, be my Lord. Jesus, be my Lord. I believe you died for me. He, he died for you. He's bled for you in order to take the debt that was yours so that you could have the righteousness and, and, and the inheritance that was only his to give. So there's hope and grace here for all this morning. And this message of Paul is put before us so that we would become deeper partakers of it. So that's my prayer for us, church. And I just, I want to close this in prayer. And I pray that this 
as I have all week, this would flood our vision in a new way. And as we, as we worship now together, that we be reminded of what Christ accomplished for us and that glorious hope stored up in heaven. Jesus, I, I do, I just thank you. I thank you for even how tough texts are actually good life-giving texts. I pray by your spirit's power, you would help us to put to death what's fleshly so that we become a deeper partaker of all that is not fleshly. We know the only way to eternal life is through death. And I thank you that that's not in vain. Would you excite our hearts with that vision? Would you draw me and just everybody here into, I guess, like a a deeper vision of what's ahead? Would you enamor our hearts with it so that we could put to death anything that would keep us from that? And Jesus, we pray this and, um, and praise you. Amen.